Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to another episode of At The Margin. This is our second episode on cryptocurrencies. Uh, today I'm joined by Will Quinn, lecturer in finance at Queen's University Belfast. Will, along with his colleague, Professor John Turner, are experts when it comes to financial bubbles. Having observed price dynamics in crypto markets of late that mimic a bubble, I invited Will along to give his views on whether cryptocurrency is indeed a financial bubble. When preparing for the chat, Will shared his recent lecture materials with me on how cryptocurrencies display many traits of financial fraud. We discussed the various types of fraud and how crypto dynamics fit these narratives. We also discussed other aspects of crypto markets, such as NFTs and Tether, and how these perhaps might also fit the narrative of fraud in specific circumstances. Tether is a stable coin and something which I knew very little about before this chat, but one thing I found very interesting was that some of the dynamics that it introduces to crypto markets uh, perhaps mimic some of the effects that uh, many advocates of cryptocurrencies try to avoid. Um, it can be very similar to maybe more traditional currencies. Will holds the coveted position of being the first repeat guest on the podcast and also the guest to feature on our 40th episode. Thanks, everybody, for the support. It's great to get to 40. I never thought we'd get this far when I started a couple of years ago. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps bring in new listeners. Okay, I'll leave it there, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. All right, well, thanks, Will, for joining me. Um, you have the uh, the privilege of being the first uh, repeat return guest <laughs> to the podcast. Um and uh, so we're going to talk about um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and this whole idea of whether we're looking at a bubble when it comes to cryptocurrencies. So you are the expert when it comes to when it comes to bubbles and you've done some thinking about it in the context of, well, actually, is it does it show signs of being a bubble or does it show signs of being of being fraud and maybe you could tell us something about what you mean by what exactly is fraud and where how that framework might help us understand what we're seeing when it comes to, to cryptocurrencies 
Yeah, th- th- thanks for having me again, Niall. So, generally speaking, with a bubble, we're talking about an asset with some underlying value. So, most bubbles are in, say, a housing market, a housing bubble, where people are paying more for a house than a house is worth. And um, that, that's why we call it a bubble. And this, you know, there's this very um, dramatic escalation of prices and then a fall in prices. Um, typically because uh, people are buying the house and the hope of selling it on for a higher price later. Also with stock market bubbles, so a stock is part ownership of a company that makes money or theoretically could make money, and therefore that the stock has some um, wealth-producing value. Um, and this explains pretty much every bubble. Uh, there are bubbles also in collectibles, say, so like a baseball card, um, would have some bubble, maybe a commodity bubble, something like gold, it, it has some value, but, but it involves some asset of value that's being sold um, for more than it's worth. Um, Bitcoin is not wealth producing and doesn't have a, a, a use value outside of the ability to sell it to someone else. And the reason that, uh, that there have been assets that have been sold like this before, but we never called them a bubble because they were fraud. So that the person initially selling these assets was fully aware that they were worthless uh, and therefore um, that this was fraud. It's a completely different categorization to a bubble. Bitcoin is the first instance where you, you couldn't necessarily call it a fraud because people believe that it's worth something. People can't compare it to a currency. Like its value comes from belief in its value, similar to some currencies, most currencies, this isn't actually the case. It's sort of widely believed, particularly in crypto circles, that the value of a currency comes solely from belief in the value of a currency. And um, this belief allows this technically worthless asset or an asset with no inherent value um, to be sold without it being fraud. Um, and that's what's distinctive about it. It's sort of somewhere in between you know it's it's not fraud but it's not necessarily a bubble either it's this sort of new um okay this new type of episode in between like a ponzi scheme and a bubble when you talk about intrinsic value in finance we're either talking about use value so or consumption value so a house can be lived in or something that can be um used uh, or we're talking about investment value, so something that generates money, um, you know, outside of your ability to, to sell it on to someone else at a potentially higher price. Now, uh, Bitcoin has neither. Uh, people might appreciate the aesthetic of digits on the screen or um, the, uh, how would I just describe it? Sort of the, the idea of holding Bitcoin. Yeah. and describe some kind of use value to that, but, but at that point, the concept of use value becomes meaningless. Um, if, if there is such thing as an asset that has no use value, then that asset is Bitcoin. Okay. And so there's different ways that the fraud can sort of manifest itself. Maybe you could sort of describe these to us and maybe relate them to, to Bitcoin, where that comes in. Yeah, well, when I, when I teach this, I direct students to the... Um, the section of the police website that, that talks about the various types of fraud. There are hundreds of different types of fraud listed on um, uh, on these information websites. 
the subcategory of financial fraud um, contains some that are quite relevant to the subject of uh, bubbles. So the, the the ones that I point out are the pump and dump. So that this is you know you, you own an asset, you spread misinformation that that increases the, the price of that asset on the market, and then you sell that asset. There's the, the boiler room fraud, which is more egregious. Selling an asset doesn't exist. Um, pyramid schemes, they're also listed on the uh, in the police website. So um, this is where uh, an organization uses the uh, investment of new entrants to pay out early adopters or early entrants, uh, typically with the person at the top taking a particularly large cut of the new money. And then a Ponzi scheme, which is very close to a pyramid scheme, but typically it's uh, obscured that this is what the case is. A lot of pyramid schemes, so these multi-level marketing platforms that, that are quite popular in the United States, they're technically open about what they are, whereas a Ponzi scheme is a pyramid scheme dressed up as a real company. I mean, the most obvious financial fraud, the one that you can't really deny is happening, it is pump and dump where um, not, not necessarily Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is um, qu- quite a broadly traded asset. And there's, there's a lot of um, market manipulation going on with Bitcoin, but um, pump and dumps are just incredibly common in uh, the, the, these smaller coins, the, the ICOs, where um, you know so someone invents a new coin, um, they pay various news outlets to promote it and run these uh, stories about how exciting it is. Um, people start buying it and the price goes up. Uh, sometimes you, you use wash trades. So, so wash trades are also very useful. A wash trade is essentially buying an asset from yourself at a high price, uh, publishing that price and making sure that people can see that the asset is trading for that price and hoping that someone sees it and joins in to, just to create this illusion of value. And right. um, this type of thing goes on a lot with the smaller cryptocurrencies. That reminds me a bit of where you'd see people doing the, like the card tricks on the side of the street, and they have they have a plant who's there winning loads of money, and they're hoping that that you walk by and you're going to be the person uh, who, who <laughs> thinks that they're going to make the money. Is that yeah, that, that's illusion. A person, yeah, it's 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 um, it's exactly like that. Uh, one of the comparisons I give to students is um, in art markets. So uh, Damien Hurst um, made headlines for uh, selling uh, one of his pieces of art to a- an anonymous consortium for, I think, $60 million, $50 million. Uh, and it, many years later, it turned out that the anonymous consortium included himself. Uh, so this sort of creates this idea that this artist is highly in demand, his work is selling for a very large amount, and these art collectors who maybe have more money than sense see this and start paying a lot of money for his other pieces of art. So this sort of thing goes on with, with some, maybe some of the minor cryptocurrencies, and just to try and give the illusion of value that you can, you make the coin, you make the price go up, and then you get out, and then the person sort of left holding the baby in a sense that they now have this thing that, that, that that's worth a lot less than what they, they paid for, I suppose. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. That's what um, I, I'd say almost all um, minor coins are. There, there is more going on. Stable coins, which are maybe a, a, another, a whole other story that, that are 
used to pump crypto prices. Uh, maybe we'll get onto that. So the other types of fraud, uh, if you have a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme, um, in what sense do you see, I suppose, cryptocurrencies fitting in, in, in that model? The basic structure of a Ponzi scheme is that you have a, a company or an asset that is not wealth producing. It's sold as an investment asset, so it's advertised as something that people should put their savings in that's going to earn them more money. Um, and the way that people do earn money from it is by paying out early entrance with the money from new entrance. This is the basic structure of a Ponzi scheme. And uh, it describes Bitcoin perfectly. This is the, the only way that Bitcoin functions as an investment. Um as an investment asset. And no one talks about Bitcoin as a currency anymore. They only talk about it as an investment. The, the, the idea of it as a currency has very much faded into the background. So that's the basic structure of it. So it has the basic structure of a Ponzi scheme. What's new about it is that it's decentralized, uh, as in it runs itself. So with, with a, a, any previous Ponzi scheme, someone is running it. There's someone in charge who's making this um, Ponzi scheme happen, happen who's, who's driving it forward. And that yeah. person is responsible for it and can be prosecuted um, because running that type of Ponzi scheme is illegal. Whereas Bitcoin, um, you know, it's started by an anonymous founder. Uh, the anonymous founder hasn't made any money out of it, as, as far as we're aware, that they've just disappeared. Yeah. Um, I have no reason to believe that the founder wasn't sincere in their desire to create a new... Um, currency, but for that reason, it's it's you know, too de- decentralized to be a classic Ponzi scheme. The the other element, and this is common to, to many you know, multi-level marketing schemes, is that you can't distinguish people who are pumping the value of Bitcoin because they want to sell it at a higher price from people who really believe in it. They all sound the same, and you can't distinguish them, and therefore. And actually holding people responsible for um, these sort of pump and dump type schemes is impossible. The models fit what we observe, I think, uh, quite well. I think when I think about it, like when, when somebody thinks of fraud, they think of, as you say, some one person who's out to try and take money out of you through illicit means. Whereas here, it's a case of people are getting involved in something and it's not really clear to them what they're getting involved in. And sometimes it might be if, if, if it's a pump and dump or if there's a case that it's like a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme um, what they're paying for, they're not really aware of where the value is going. And so it's not really driven by an individual. It's more like the, the general aggregation of what's going on in the market. Is, is that sort of what's happening? Is, is it more a case of the behavior of, of everybody is herd behavior nearly is sort of driving it? To an extent, that's true. It's not as decentralized as advertised. Right. So, um, anyway, everyone in the cryptosphere knows about wheels, is that the terminology used. So, that the prices are often um, driven by very large traders, often with the, um, often in order to manipulate the price, in order to uh, ruin margin traders. So, say you're buying a stock on margin. Um, you have to put down a particular uh, down payment. You, you borrow a lot. It, it means so you're borrowing a lot of money in order to buy Bitcoin, say. Yeah. And if the price falls below a certain level, 
the, the person that, or the institution that you borrowed money from demands it back. So you're forced to liquidate, you're forced to sell the Bitcoin, and then that drives the price of Bitcoin down further. And at that point, the market manipulator uh, can buy the, the Bitcoin back. So the margin trader is somebody who uh, puts their money up to buy a Bitcoin, but they also borrow money so yes. that they can sort of buy with greater, uh, they have more firepower, basically. Exactly, right. But they're, they're, they're forced to, if the price falls below a certain level, they're forced to sell the Bitcoin in order to pay back uh, right. the lender. And this sort of pressure of selling um, yeah. you know, forces them out of the market uh, and also tends to drive prices down further. So uh, markets with a lot of margin trading going on tend to have mm. very strong momentum effects. This was uh, the reason for the Wall Street crash right. was um, the number of investors who, who were investing with borrowed money because as soon as the price falls, uh, it, like a moderate amount, these people are all forced by the, their bankers to get out of the market. And this drives prices down very quickly, very rapidly. At which point, anyone who wasn't investing on margin can just buy it back at a, yeah. at a much lower price. So, so if, you're, if you're a whale, is your strategy to maybe just sell a, a load of Bitcoin at one stage so that all these people ha are forced to sell and then buy back even more when the price goes down? Yeah, that, that, that's a common wheel strategy. Um, and um, you, you can do it in the opposite direction as well. So there are what we'd call margin shorts who uh, borrow money to bet against Bitcoin. And when the price of Bitcoin rises above a certain level, uh, they're also forced to liquidate in, in both directions. And it produces a very distinctive trading pattern, uh, which became known as the BART because... Um, on a, on a depth chart, it looks like Bart Simpson's haircut. Right. <laughs> like a, a large uh, vertical rise in prices, followed by lots of spikes, and then a right. drop in prices. <laughs> um, I'll have to look out for that one. Um, yeah. But, uh, so, okay, right, so that sort of strategy then is, is common enough when it comes to... Um, when it comes to Bitcoin. And so you can see these sort of patterns uh, in the data, I suppose. Yeah, it's. I, th I think it's very commonly understood, but this isn't. Um, so so uh, there are things I say that, that a crypto enthusiast would argue with, but this isn't really one of them. Everyone knows that large traders ha have a significant effect on the on the crypto market. So yeah, these wheels are a, a widely accepted phenomenon. We have the issue of, of crypto, um, and it, it can sort of fit these different narratives of. A pump and dump or this sort of uh, Ponzi type scheme, pyramid scheme. How do we see it all sort of coming to a head and you know, developing from here? How would you see it? Uh, things, where do you see things going? So the, the major risk, the systemic uh, issue with crypto markets at the moment is the widespread use of Tether, uh, which is this surrogate US dollar, uh, which is pegged to the US dollar but only backed by the U.S. dollar to about 4%. Um, it's, right. it's, it, it's this enormous scheme, a, a very strange-looking scheme. And it's, you know, it's been uh, fined by the um, New York Attorney General. And, and it's, I don't know for sure, but, but I, I think it's still under investigation and it, it, it's required to produce these attestations 
as to what its assets actually are. Um, but the, the market at the moment is the, the major quote currency, the currency that people use to buy Bitcoin is Tether. Right. It's not the dollar. Most crypto trading happens with Tether. There are, I think, 60 billion Tethers in existence, and they're backed then by maybe um, two and a half or three billion dollars. Uh, and this seems uh, very difficult to sustain. So the whole idea of Tether is that um, you buy a Tether and then you use that to trade Bitcoin. Yeah, it's it, so it's regulatory arbitrage. It, it, you use Tether because if you're buying and selling crypto with US dollars, uh, very often you keep having to incur regulatory and compliance costs. Um, right. So Tether is a way of avoiding that. And because it's basically a way of uh, avoiding laws, um, banks aren't happy with it. It's, you know, it's yeah. very useful for money launderers. So it's had a lot of trouble attracting real banks. It's currently using Delta Bank. Uh, in the Bahamas. Okay. So I so if I want to buy Bitcoin and I could buy with dollars, but every time I make a trade, it costs me a couple of dollars in transaction costs. So I can avoid those transaction costs by trading over and back with Tether. Yes. Then I can cash. Then at the end of everything, I can cash out my Tether for my dollars, and I have my money. But I have um. I have avoided all those different those transaction costs. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a way of incurring these transaction costs less often. Um, yeah. Just sometimes talk about like an on ramp from you know the, the world of dollars and pounds to the world of crypto, an on ramp and an off ramp. And every time you cross that ramp, you have to um, fulfill all of these obligations. So particularly know your customer regulations. You have to know that you're not. Uh, facilitating money laundering that you're not buying or selling Bitcoin from uh, some enormous gangster. Um, so, and so you're saying there, Tether. Then it's um, it's only backed a percentage by dollars. So basically, does that mean it's a bit like a bank that that sort of has only a certain amount of money in reserve? Yeah, they only have a certain amount of dollars in reserve. So they're, they're essentially it's like they're creating money in a way, is it? Or? That's exactly what it's like. Yeah, it's it's so it's fractional reserve banking. Which you know obviously is very standard, but the difference with Tether is that for a very long time they um, didn't admit that this was what it was. Then instead there was a vault in which all of these dollars were uh, held. Yeah. So for for every Tether in existence, there's a, a dollar in their vaults, and this was what the New York Attorney General um, prosecuted them for and charged them with, which is continually lying about this. Right. Uh, during that uh, case, that they stated that their the tellers were only 75% backed. Um, now they say they're fully backed, but mostly by receivables, so loans that they've made to other companies, uh, or what they call commercial paper. Um, so again, just, just loans to, to other small companies, and they are effectively functioning as a bank. Um, and the major systemic risk in crypto is, at the moment is a run on Tether because they have created a lot of money that can only be used in crypto. And I can't see any way in which that doesn't inflate prices. If you have an additional, say, $57 billion out there, but the only thing yeah. you can do with those dollars is buy crypto. 
price is going to go up. <laughs> the price, yeah, the price must truly go up. And there are theories that are out there that Tether doesn't have this effect on the markets, but I, they don't add up to me at all. Um, yeah. And I think that the, the, the sort of the immediate failure case would be that the whole system runs out of dollars, that there's a, a run, what you could call maybe a flight to fiat or a flight to dollars where lots of people want to cash out at the same time. Uh, the, the peg between Tether and the US dollar falls and the whole thing falls apart. Um, their stated purpose originally didn't make sense from a business perspective. Um, yeah. But maybe you can invest these dollars in ultra safe assets, uh, which are your cash equivalents, but they bear some interest and make money that way. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 sure, so, sure. Yeah. So maybe there are ways that it could have worked, but um, yeah, it, it didn't really add up to me. Um, um, there's a run on Tether where everybody wants to cash their Tether into into, into dollars, um, and there aren't enough. That means everybody wants to get out of Bitcoin essentially at the same time, and the price is going to drop dramatically. Yeah, that, that's the so, so it could happen though because Tether is so widely traded, the actual price of Bitcoin usually includes some trades that are actually occurring in Tether. So it, the price of Bitcoin is the headline price of Bitcoin that newspapers would report is the average of the traded price of Bitcoin on various exchanges. And some of those exchanges use Tether. So if Tether lost all of its value, the exchanges that use Tether um, would actually see the price of Bitcoin rise to infinity. Um, so, so the actual stated price of Bitcoin, anything could happen to it really, except okay. you couldn't get dollars for it. You could only you, you, you couldn't you couldn't cash out to dollars, so it would be meaningless. But right, well, what's what actually happens on paper or on the screen? The, the price of Bitcoin could go anywhere, um, but but this game would be falling apart. People would be lo- losing enormous amounts of money. So that would that would add fuel to the speculation that there is. You know the price is inflated above what maybe it's hard to know what the value is, but it adds greater upper pressure to the price. Then, if there's this, yeah. So until January, I, I always get asked about whether things are in a bubble or not. Um, yeah. And until January, I was asked, "Is Bitcoin in a bubble?" And I said, "Well, not really, because it's only being inflated by Tether. The price is rising, um, but we weren't seeing any new retail interest. It wasn't hitting the news media." The only thing that was happening was that more and more tethers were being issued. Uh, to, to me, that uh, this is something that would be disputed, but to me, it looked it, the, the the most obvious explanation for the rise in Bitcoin prices was the issue of new tether, which we now know for a fact weren't backed by anything. So until then, I thought it's it's not so much a bubble; it's a, a market manipulation story. But after January, with Elon Musk tweeting and uh, a lot of news media coverage, news media typically didn't realize this was what was causing the initial rise in prices. Now lots of retail investors are entering the market and have been entering the market and a lot of real dollars have been coming into Bitcoin. So at this point, I would say, yeah, it, it is a bubble and maybe we're um, in the aftermath of that bubble, but mm. the, the difficulty there, so we saw a, a crash last week, which you uh, referred to, where the price of Bitcoin started falling. Uh, but immediately afterwards, a, a billion new tethers were issued, and then prices recovered. So, in a sense, when you buy Bitcoin, what people don't realize 
is that when they buy Bitcoin, they're betting on the sustainability of this enormous scheme. Yeah. This scheme where every time the price falls, new tethers are issued in order to prop it up, and this creates further momentum effects. When you buy Bitcoin, you're betting that this can keep on going for long enough that you can get out. You're not necessarily betting on the power of a narrative. I think this is what people maybe think they're betting on. You sort of semi-informed people are like, your Bitcoin is this beautiful, um, powerful story. And when I buy it, I'm betting that more people are going to hear that story and get into it and drive the price higher. But really what's driving it is this enormous scheme. And the bull case for Bitcoin is that Tether is too big to fail, that even if the, the Tether Corporation collapsed, someone would just have too much of a vested interest in it, that they would need to step in and sustain the peg, because the peg is absolutely crucial to the entire sphere. And um, for this reason, that this is somehow sustainable. That, that, that's the bull case for Bitcoin. Uh, right. And the bear case is... The price is inflated by fake dollars, and that's not sustainable, so it's going to fall apart. Right, okay, okay. And when you said when the price goes down and more tether are issued, they're issued by people, is it that people are invest, are converting dollars to tether and they want to invest, or is it that there's some other way the tether are issued? Assuming that tether operates as a bank, tether just... Um, it issues these tether. Typically, they're issued to exchanges. So, you, you the, the tether corporation would print tethers and g- give them to exchanges and incur a liability, uh, or give them to an associate of some sort. It doesn't have to be an exchange, and that exchange then incurs some kind of a liability. So they're, you know, they're, they're lending it, and then on tellers balance sheet, it, it comes up that they're owed um, a certain amount of money uh, from 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 this exchange. Just when I think of this whole tether dynamic, because this is completely new to me, but um, uh, I would have thought, okay, Bitcoin, 21 million, therefore supply is a hard fix and and the price, like in the very long term, the, the price is the only way is up really. But now we have the situation, this dynamic where you can release more tether and it seems to have an effect on prices. So you can, you can control the money supply in a way. Um, yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. It's similar. Um, the, the, the historical bubble, which is the um, maybe the most interesting precedent, is uh, the Mississippi bubble in 1720, where um, John Law uh, in France realized for the first time, this was before modern central banks existed, he realized for the first time what, what you could do to the prices of assets by controlling the money supply, which you don't know modern central banks do, right? That this is... Yeah. A sort of a, a form of waterboidery that yeah. a crypto enthusiast would often resort to. It's like, okay, Tether control the money supply to inflate asset prices, but so do the Federal Reserve, which is true. Um, but but that, that goes against the whole you know ideology surrounding Bitcoin, that we, we don't have this sort of manipulation. But, right, uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a bit of a bait and switch, right? It's, um, yeah. you know, Bitcoin is good because there are all these problems with the financial system, and then all of these problems in the world of Bitcoin are okay because these problems also exist in the financial system. Yeah, yeah. You can't yeah. have it both ways. Just one other thing then to mention, you, you discussed uh, NFTs and um, the whole idea of NFTs in the context of 
their value and if is it a bubble or is it a is it a fraud or how they can be used perhaps for fraud maybe you could tell us a little bit about a bit about that so nfts are simply sold as if they confer ownership of something hmm. but whether they actually confer ownership of something or not is a matter of law a property is a matter of law so how enforceable these contracts are no one really knows i'd imagine that in the case where say i um i make a particular piece of art and i sell you an nft of that particular piece of art and there's a paper trail where i've um strongly implied or suggested that this gives you ownership of that art i would imagine that the law would uphold that mm. but a lot of nfts that are issued uh, are issued on something that um, the issue of the NFT doesn't actually own. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, it's like if I sold you an NFT on the, the Mona Lisa, it doesn't mean that you own the Mona Lisa because I didn't have the right to sell it to you. Um, in a lot of cases, say, so, uh, uh, so, so say a musician sells an NFT on uh, a song, Yeah. but the song is usually owned, the, the property rights to that song are usually owned by a record company. Uh, so the, the, the musician didn't have the right to sell that song. And in some cases, people know this. People are buying NFTs as a way to support the artist directly, and they're okay with that. Uh, but the, the field maybe needs more clarity. Uh, yeah. It's understanding that these, these are just tokens. These are um, you know, the equivalent to a certificate of ownership that doesn't have any legal power necessarily, and... Um, that they don't actually mean that you own anything yeah. uh, all of the time. Um, like property is a legal construct. Mm. Um, you know whether uh, you actually own something or not is a matter for the courts, a matter for the state. You know the people with all the guns that can actually enforce uh, ownership. Um, or at least that's my view of property: is that it, it's legal, it's it's legally enforceable. So, yeah. so people's property as sort of a, a natural law or a naturally existing thing. But, uh, but, but either way, you would want, if you want to own something, you want it to be ultimately legally enforceable that you own it. And NFTs, you know, people can spend the money on whatever they want. Like I said, it's often a way to support an artist that you like or to pay for um, this creative work that's not always easy to make money out of. And people are okay with that, and I'm okay with that, but uh, there, there's a lot of obfuscation and misinformation going on, and uh, some clarity would be good on what you're actually getting when you buy an NFT. That was really interesting anyway. Thanks, Will. Um, I learned learned a bit there. <laughs> that was useful. All right. Well, thanks again, Will, and sure, um, I'm, we'll be in touch anyway. All right. Great. Well, All the best. Talk to you later. Bye.